when you look at the what they call GPT-3, this program that Google developed and released in various forms that can write prose. And it's very impressive and it can do other related things that in the past had really been thought were only the province of the human mind. And they can at least make very convincing imitations of it. And a big part of my job as a politician, it's sort of legislator by day and telemarketer by night, that you spend a lot of your time raising money for your campaign, which means you're having very repetitive discussions with a large number of people to convince them that the product you're selling, which is your candidacy, is something that they can get excited about investing in. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Congressman Bill Foster, and he's my guest on this special inaugural day episode of Sales Enablement with Andy Paul. Now, Representative Foster represents the 11th Congressional District in Illinois, which is in the Chicago area. And Bill serves on the House Financial Services Committee. He chairs the Financial Services Committee's Task Force on Artificial Intelligence. He also serves in the House Science, Space, and Technology Committees, and he's chair of that committee's Investigations and Oversight Subcommittee. He also is appointed to serve on the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus, which is examining the federal government's response to the COVID-19 crisis. Before becoming a member of Congress, Bill worked as a high-energy physicist and particle accelerator designer at the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory. Uh, in the Chicago area, he was a member of the team that discovered the top quark with the heaviest known form of matter. Before getting his PhD in physics from Harvard, Bill was a successful entrepreneur of the company he founded at age 19 with his younger brother, now manufactures over half of the theater lighting equipment in the United States. And before that, and getting to the point why he's on the show, Bill Foster was one of my best friends in junior high school in Madison, Wisconsin, at Van High's Junior High, and we were part of a gang of four kind of nerdy guys that were inseparable in 7th, 8th, and ninth grades. So... I was really pleased when he accepted my invitation to join me on the show, and we cover a lot of ground in this conversation. From Bill's experience starting a hugely successful startup company at age 19, to working at the leading edge, very leading edge of high energy physics, to deciding to run for Congress, and we take on some of the major issues of the day, the election, its aftermath, and the COVID-19 crisis. Now, just FYI, this conversation was recorded before the horrible events of January 6th took place. So here's my conversation with Representative Bill Foster. Bill, welcome to the show. Well, happy to be here. So uh, how do you split your time you know, during the pandemic between Washington, D.C. and Chicago? Well, under normal times, I fly back to Illinois pretty much every weekend. Uh, but during the pandemic, uh, getting on an airplane is a risk that you don't voluntarily take. And so, um, so I've actually been in... Uh, in DC for over a month now. After we canceled all of the all of the family Thanksgiving activities, it just didn't right. seem worth it. So, right. so this little one room apartment that I uh, that my wife and I live in in DC <laughs> is getting mighty small. <laughs> yeah, well, my wife and I spent uh, the first you know, three to four months in Manhattan in a one bedroom, actually a studio apartment, actually <laughs> uh, in Manhattan, which was uh, very close quarters indeed. That's right. Well, it's a good stress test of your, your marriage. Right? Of our relationship, yeah. yeah. We, made it, we made it through. So which part of Chicago do you represent? It is the uh, actually the second, third, and fourth largest cities in Illinois in the form of Aurora, Joliet, and Naperville. I actually live in Naperville. It's the southwest suburbs. Got it. Okay. So a uh, question I've been asking all my guests recently is, so what's, what's the single biggest lesson you've learned about yourself during the pandemic? Um, I've learned to respect the the fragility of mental health of other people uh, a mm -hmm. lot more. Just to to recognize that, um, you know, just because you have felt really tough and robust yourself, to understand how fragile everything is for everyone. Yeah, yeah. that's that's so, <laughs> that's so true, and not made any easier by all the craziness that's going on around. Um, so, for people who may have missed the intro. You and I have known each other since uh, seventh grade, I think, in Madison, Wisconsin. That's uh, right. So we can tell all sorts of nice stories about, uh, you know, the truth about what each of us was like <laughs> in seventh grade, if you want. Well, I think I think it'd be fair to sort of summarize that we we're kind of nerdy. Well, I mean, that's right. Yep. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a gang of four of us that sort of <laughs> were the gang of four. Um, yeah, yeah, we were not uh, we were not the big men on campus by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I but it's still um, yeah, it's still a valuable part of life. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, no, it was great to have, uh, I said, this close group. And I, I, I have this distinct memory that French class in, like, eighth grade or something. I was, like, <laughs> us four and, like, 20 girls or something. Uh, that's right. And then there was uh, Madame Sipperly with an exceptionally short skirt. Yes, yes, our, our French teacher, yeah. who was very fashionable, very <laughs> so for the day. <laughs> So you just won re-election to Congress yourself. I mean, how long have you been representing this this district? Well, it's complicated. I entered Congress in March of 2008 in a special election to replace Dennis Hastert, oh, the former yeah. Republican Speaker of the House. Um, yes. And so this was by winning his very heavily uh, gerrymandered district to make it safe for a Republican. And so everyone was sort of shocked when this scientist and Democrat won this seat. Uh, it actually made headlines around the world uh, at the time. And so I held on to that gerrymandered Republican district for three years, lost in the Tea Party wave election in 2010, and then returned two years later. And so you can add it up. It's it's over a decade now at yeah. this point. And now you in the same district or was it a different district that you represented the second time? It, it overlapped. Uh, there was a, between 2010 and 2012, uh, Illinois lost a seat and the maps changed significantly. Got it. Got it. So you mentioned you were a scientist. So you were, your career, you sort of, I guess I sort of think about like two careers this is uh, you are a physicist, but you're also simultaneously an entrepreneur. So that's right. Well, I followed the sort of well-trodden path from theatrical stage lighting to high energy particle physics to the U.S. Congress. Yeah, so yeah, another very one common. Typical. Yeah, yeah, very typical. Well, people, so, but, yeah, you yeah. started this company with your brother. Yeah, You're, so when I was 19, my little brother and I started this company with 500 bucks from my parents and in our basement. Now we had the, this was right when the microprocessor was invented. And so we had the bright idea of using this newly invented microprocessor to control theatrical stage lighting. Uh, so what had, what had happened is my, my younger brother sort of rebelled against the fact that my elder sister and I did very well in school. And so he rebelled against this by hanging out with the theater crowd mm -hmm. and refusing to, you know, refusing to uh, study for math tests and stuff like that. And so, um, so he became, you know, you know, very adept at, at particularly theater, theater lighting. And at some point, uh, the University of Wisconsin paid maybe $100,000 for a big, clunky manual uh, theater lighting control board. And so my brother hauled me down there and asked me, you know, at this point, I had been sort of building computers out of, of spare logic chips, uh, uh, you know, as a, um, well, late high schooler and undergrad. Um, and, and so we said, you know, can you do better than this? I said, yeah, probably for about $500 in parts, we can build something that will massively outperform this, uh, this $100,000 object. So it seemed like there was a business model there. And mm -hmm. a year later, we had a working prototype and we went to a trade show and uh, found uh, an established firm to market it for us. And so for the first uh, three or four years, we, um, we built the equipment and then it was marketed by an established firm who slapped their label on it. Um, and then at one point, uh, Disney uh, hired, hired them and us jointly uh, to make the controller for the Disneyland Main Street Electrical Parade. <laughs> something that I said that which, for, I've been, which I've been to many times. That's right, and and perhaps hauled your kids to it. Um, yes. And so and so for you know for decades, the system that ran all of the sound and light cues for that was something that I programmed. Uh, you know, back when I was uh, you know working for the company, uh, and and so this is then at that point Disney realized that it was not the company that was marketing it for us, but actually these these two young kids. That were actually, you know, the brains behind the operation. And then when this is when Disney was building Epcot, and they realized that, hey, you know, we have to buy a large number of theater lighting control boards, and why don't we let these kids bid on it? And so at that point, um, when we won that bid, that was instant credibility for our firm, uh, yeah, and no we kidding. started selling directly. You know, um, the other big breakthrough was um, 
when a major, now I don't know if I can, I have to think carefully about whether I'm allowed to say this, uh, but a, a very famous rock star used our, um, used our equipment when uh, she went out on tour. And this was another breakthrough. Uh, that and we we got instant credibility into the rock and roll market. Uh, and Very so, cool. Yeah, you so, like to think that it's the quality of your equipment, but in in reality, it's it's the reputation that you get from association that's so important right. in business. So, this company still exists today. Oh yeah, it's got about twelve hundred people, and um, and it's uh, well after we um, after we had our first order, um, well, we started out in our basement. And then dad kicked us out of the basement because we were making too big a mess. So we moved up to my bedroom. And then when we got our first order, we moved to a little metal shed in a cornfield. And now it's a great big building in a cornfield with about 1,200 people. Um, I actually uh, no longer own it. Um, when I went into politics, I had my partners buy me out. Got it. Uh, because I just didn't want to be casting votes that affected my net worth. Right. Interesting. So... <laughs> How then did you get from there to getting your PhD in physics at MIT? But Harvard, um, but it was a oh Harvard. So okay, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, Harvard. Um, so you know, I had always you know, there's an almost universal experience that most physicists have, which is that they go and say, you know, they realize that you know they look around at their class and they think, you know, I'm, I'm maybe the smartest person in my class, and then you look around and. And you say, you know, maybe I'm the smartest person in the world. And so, you know, mommy, daddy, who's the smartest person in the world? Well, it's Albert Einstein. Okay. And oh, well, then what? Um, Albert Einstein, what does he do? He's a physicist. Oh, well, I'm going to be a physicist. Um, and, and, you know, the real, but then the real applied physics that's very important when you're growing up is to build explosive devices, homemade mm -hmm. explosive devices, which is also a nearly universal experience among, among physicists. Um, to work on weapons um well they, yeah you can you know go off and work on the manhattan project and, and related things if you really right. get into that but you know for me it was like you know many kids it was just um you know doing various things that are currently pretty heavily illegal um it's one of the <laughs> tragedies that you know the, the unabomber kind of wrecked that it used to right. be a very good bonding experience uh, right i remember my my grandfather had you know very advanced technology that he transferred to us and I realized that you probably can't do that to kids anymore. And so the technology was unfortunately lost. Right. Um, but, um, you know, but with that aside, so I'd always, uh, you know, had an, um, you know, had, had a love for physics. You know, it's one of the things where you actually have complete control over um, what's right and what's wrong. You know, it's not like politics where you can never really do controlled experiments mm -hmm. and say, well, what happened? Would have, if we would have done something differently, what would have happened? You know, that's not an experiment you can perform in politics. Right. Uh, but in, in physics, you often can. And so for, if you like certainty in life, uh, physics is very attractive. And, uh, and also just trying to really um, understand, you know, how things operate. You, know, you take things apart. I think that's what, what made me return to high energy physics uh, that, you know, I think there's a fundamental instinct in humans to take stuff apart, you know, that all of those apes when they were wandering around and they saw a nut falling on the ground and it didn't occur to them to try to break it open to see what was inside and discover it was edible, that mm -hmm. all the apes that didn't have that instinct sort of died. And so every one of us has an instinct to take stuff apart. Right, um, and so that leads you to take you know the the nuts apart and to you know get at the the molecules and the atoms and eventually take the atoms apart to get the protons, neutrons, electrons. Take the protons and neutrons apart to get at the quarks. And you know, so far we've been trying to take quarks apart with no luck, but it doesn't mean we'll stop trying. Yeah. So <laughs> in your bio, it said your pirate team discovered the top quark. The top quark. Yeah, and yep. I tried to I tried to spend some time online <laughs> reading about top quark, and I was quickly out of my depth <laughs> on that. So, yeah. so what was the significance of that discovery? Well, it was um, you know quarks are what are um, what protons and neutrons are made of. Now they each have three quarks in them, uh, but those are those are the lowest mass quarks, the lightest quarks. 
Um, the heavier quarks require a lot more energy to make. With the Einstein's E equals MC squared, you need a lot of energy to make a lot of mass. And so uh, these, these very heavy quarks can only be made on giant particle accelerators. So all of the time that I was working on particle accelerators at Fermi National Accelerator Lab in suburban Chicago, which um, the whole time that I was there, it actually was the highest energy particle accelerator in the world. And what we were doing was smashing protons and antiprotons together to make particles that have not been around since the Big Bang. And uh, so for generations, uh, uh, particle physicists have been making larger and larger accelerators. And as they, as they smash things together harder and harder, you make more and more of these, these heavier and heavier quarks. And then for various theoretical reasons, it became clear that there was only one quark left to be discovered uh, called the top quark. It was clearly going to be the heaviest one. Mm -hmm. And so, so billions, many billions of dollars was spent all around the world building accelerators, uh, larger and larger ones, in failed efforts to uh, have enough energy to build the top quark. And so at Fermi Lab, we uh, invented and made work the superconducting uh, proton synchrotron, which finally had enough energy uh, to produce the top quark, uh, the heaviest known form of matter. And, um, and as I say, for various theoretical reasons, probably the heaviest particle that will ever be discovered. And so it's, it's something that America can be proud of that really in the, in the science textbooks forever, on the prairies of Illinois, uh, we have discovered uh, not only the top quark, but also the bottom quark, the second heaviest of the quarks. And so, again, for, for lay people, I mean, having discovered it, so what 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 now with that? Oh, you mean what's the commercial application? I well, no, not necessarily what's the commercial that. application, but what what's it mean for us? I mean that we that we now know this exists. Well, the person who founded Fermi National Laboratory um, was asked that uh, at a at a I think a Senate hearing, uh, and this was during the Cold War when you know the United States was spending hundreds of millions of dollars building this accelerator. Mm -hmm. And they said, okay, can you tell us, uh, you know, Dr. Wilson, the leader of the lab, uh, uh, you know, what this has to do with national defense? And he said, well, I have to tell you that it has absolutely nothing to do with national defense, except perhaps to make the country more worth defending. Hmm. And that's the real reason that, you mm -hmm. know, that this will be in the textbooks forever. That when people around the world, uh, you know, learn about the very finite number of quarks that exist in our universe. Um, it's going to be in, in the U.S. and at, at our lab in Illinois where it was discovered. And, you know, that's worth it. something. It's, it's like it astronomy. It, it's hard to argue that there are going to be real commercial spinoffs from astronomy. But it just, uh, you know, it makes you, um, at least makes scientists very proud and, and interested when we discover, you know, gravity waves from supermassive black holes merging. Uh, yeah. that from across the universe. You know, this is pretty amazing that uh, that these things can be detected. Well, I think it, it sort of speaks to, and I, I mean, you tell me, obviously, you're very familiar more with the budget, uh, the federal budget and so on, but it seems like there's been, based on what I've read, many fewer dollars devoted to, to this type of basic research that that's important. Yeah, and it's a... And the spinoffs are actually very unanticipated. Uh, for example, at Fermilab, we needed uh, superconducting wire, very high-performance superconducting wire, to make these magnets for this very big particle accelerator we wanted to build. And so we put a lot of effort in developing high-quality superconducting wire. And then after we used it successfully for the Fermilab accelerator, we could not prevent that same wire from being used for um, magnetic MRI scanners mm -hmm. that you know most people have been inside at this point and certainly well by the end of their lives uh, and so that wasn't our intention but you know when people realized that we had these very powerful magnets that dissipated no electricity to keep them going uh, the doctors got very excited at the possibilities of using this to scan patients yeah I mean it's to me it's sort of like what we hear about the you know the Apollo program and all these other you know, pivotal space programs that there is just so much unintended spinoff of technology that just from the basic research we're doing that, that, um, yeah, in part justifies what we're doing there. 
Yeah, sure. And then this whole uh, this whole business with the miraculously rapid development of vaccines that everyone is <laughs> celebrating right now. You know, that actually right. started at the University of Wisconsin uh, back in the early 1990s yep. when a couple of clowns in, uh, I'm not, I think it was, uh, may have been the medical school, uh, just took a little bit of, of um, mRNA, injected into a mouse and said, my gosh, look at the mouse is making protein, according to the recipe. And of course, you know, it was nowhere near usable as a vaccine. But then everyone got excited and over the next two decades developed what became the vaccine platform that that allowed us to go from the uh, from the basic genetic map of the virus to injecting the first patient 60 days later. Um, and that was because of decades of federally funded research, much of which had nothing to do with vaccine development. Just saying, you know, how the heck does this mRNA actually work? Right. Yeah, my wife, who's... Yeah, you know, teaches uh, medical school as, as a PhD scientist was explaining the whole how the messenger RNA works in the in the vaccine with the spike proteins. Uh, yeah. yeah, very fascinating. And this, to your point, that did it in sixty days. So, mm -hmm. what then was the impetus to, to run for Congress? Well, I say tell people sometimes that I fell prey to the family's recessive gene for adult onset political activism. <laughs> uh, you know, this is something that actually runs in my family. Um, my dad was also a scientist. Uh, you know, he got a chemistry degree from Stanford, and during World War II, he designed fire control computers for the Navy. Um, and most of the way through the war, started getting these reports of how many people were killed by his team's equipment, um, you know, each week, mm -hmm. and became very unhappy with the idea of his technical skills of being used to hurt people. But he'd uh, grown up in the South and saw a bunch of things he didn't like about how blacks were treated. And he saw the civil rights movement as the moral challenge of his generation. So he left his career in science and became a civil rights lawyer. He ended up writing uh, much of the enforcement language behind the Civil Rights Act of 1964, wow. uh, one of the biggest steps forward for human rights in our country's history. And so it was actually reading his papers after he passed away, geez, about 20 years ago now, uh, that that I started thinking about this fundamental question of what fraction of your life you spend in service to your fellow man. You know, this is a question that every one of us has to answer. Uh, and, you know, for most people, it's a number between 0% and 100%. Right. Uh, and it's also a question that science does not help you answer at all. It just, you know, you just have to look at the spirit inside you and, and why you think you're on Earth. And, and was so, there... Was yeah. there a particular issue at that time, though, that, that animated you? To well, one of the action? things that has frustrated me for you know, my whole adult life is when I see federal policy being made for reasons that are either based on wishful thinking about science or, or just uh, not realistic technical understanding of what's possible. And that, that causes us to make a lot of mistakes in federal policy. And as a scientist, I felt I could contribute a lot there. You know, you, if you just look at climate policy, there are many, many ways that we can spend money to try to mitigate carbon emissions, and some are much more effective than others. And so it's really, you know, our duty is in public policy to make sure we spend money on the ways that are, are most efficient. Uh, and, you know, well, where the, the basic figure of merit is the number of tons of carbon dioxide mitigated mm -hmm. per dollar of federal tax money. And it's a very cold-blooded, analytic way of looking at it, but it has to be the starting point when we decide how we're going to fix this. And that currently is not the standard, I take it? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a funny thing because most things that are proposed are a mixture of, of job creation and, um, and carbon dioxide mitigation. Uh, and so there are... They're a combination of, you know, there's a number of jobs created per dollar, mm -hmm. and then, and which is a metric that you look at. And the other one is the amount of carbon dioxide mitigated per dollar. And so uh, it, it's really a two-dimensional selection of, of programs. But very often people who are presenting this are not eager to have that uh, those numbers discussed and have them compared, their pet projects compared against other projects which maybe could create more jobs or mitigate more carbon for less taxpayer expenditure. Right. So you can imagine it's a fraught discussion inside Congress. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, like most of them, I imagine. So you sit on the House Select Committee on on coronavirus. So, you know, here we're recording this, uh, you know, so halfway between Thanksgiving and, and December. We're in the midst of the second and or third surge, depending what you're, what you're reading is. So, you know, what's your current assessment of the situation? Well, I think there has been a tremendous scientific triumph of the creation of the vaccine and the mass production of it. Um, you know, as this is something that has been decades in the making. Um, this is not, uh, it's not a big triumph of Operation Warp Speed. Uh, in fact, long before Operation Warp Speed, uh, Congress had, had allocated money and given specific written instructions uh, to Health and Human Services uh, to do exactly, you know, to uh, mass produce a number of vaccines before you knew which ones worked so that when you des- determined which ones worked, you'd be ready to go. And, you know, just this week, we are ending up being a little bit disappointed that apparently, despite all the money we were given, uh, the administration did not see fit to exercise all of its options on the Pfizer vaccine, the right. first one across the, the line. And despite the fact that we've given them more than enough money to do this, they somehow decided that uh, they didn't like the fact, perhaps, that, that Pfizer, the Pfizer vaccine was developed by a couple of Turkish immigrants in Germany. You know, not, not mm. exactly, you know, good old Americans like we like to celebrate in politics sometimes, but but that was the first one developed. Um, and so perhaps for that reason or perhaps for other reasons, we looks like we're not going to be at the front of the line to get uh, to get large numbers of, of doses early of the Pfizer vaccine. And so there are things like that where, you know, Congress uh, has to has to really step in. And, and ask the hard questions of the administration. Okay, we gave you this money. Um, we see that you have contracts with options. Why did you choose not to exercise those? Mm-hmm. And, so, and, and so I actually have a Republican partner in asking those questions. And, and what we do is we give instructions to an organization called the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, right. which is a tremendously valuable thing. It serves as an interface between Congress and the federal agencies. And so they have, um, you know, they have the ability, for example, to get access to all of the electronic contracting information uh, for the military um, that were used. All of the contracting for Operation Warp Speed was done through the military. And they have a, you know, one of the very organized things they do is they have all of their contracting information online. And when GAO gets access to that, they can find out what the truth is instead of what some politician is spinning when they go up to the podium to, to give the excuse for why things may not be working the way they promised. And so, you know, that's a, that's a very valuable thing we can do. And so um, Representative Mark Green, he's actually a, a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you know, and, and, he and he's a very conservative Republican. He and I agree on approximately nothing, right. except that the government has to do the job that, it, you know, that Congress assigns it to to do and and so we're um you know we're going to have very very crucial information from the gao on what actually happened here and and moreover what is going to happen over the next few months as the vaccines of different kinds are available for delivery according to the contracts when you say you agree with virtually nothing with with representative green is 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 he a COVID denier? I mean, does he believe in the science of what's happened with the... Well, let's see. He ended, um, no, he, he understands at the molecular level, you know, the biochemical thing. It's, it's, he's a scientist that way. Um, he and I have sparred publicly in committee hearings over the usefulness of masks. Uh, and, you know, part of that is, uh, you know, our analytic scientific questions that you can answer. And then, and then parts of it are just sort of philosophical differences that can't be resolved with science. Like, you know, for example, part of the reason that you wear a mask is to protect not yourself, uh, but, but other, other people. people. Exactly. And so if, you're, if your philosophy is such that I, I have no, no social duty to do anything to protect other people, it should all be about myself, then you get one set of policies. If you believe that there is a social duty to protect your fellow man, you get a different set of policies. And so at the core, that is where we disagree, for example. Right. 
is some of this though, and I, I just wonder, sort of a bigger question that philosophically that I have is, is in this country, and you see this at a more macro level than I do uh, in your position, but it seems to me really since I'll say nine eleven that that it's like politicians are afraid to ask uh, their constituents to sacrifice for the greater good. And, mm. you know, we talk about, or I refer back to, you know, we have this big event in 9-11, we, we go to war, yet in the midst of the war, we have this major tax cut, um, you know, for high-end earners. It's like, wouldn't it have been reasonable to say, look, everybody needs to sort of chip in and, and sacrifice for the greater good at this yeah. time? And well, you know, it seems like we sort of right. that ethos. The deal has changed. Yeah, you're right. The, the social deal has changed. You know, I remember when I was starting my company, um, you know, my brother and I knew that uh, that if our ship ever came in and our company became as big and successful as it is right now, that we would pay, be paying top, you know, marginal tax rates. Um, I think at the time they were up near 90%. Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, that only applied once your company had become big and successful. Um, and, but that did not stop us from staying up all night, getting the first product shipped out the door. Uh, because, you know, we wanted, partly because we wanted to build, uh, you know, to build a company and, um, and partly because the, the rates didn't affect you until you got a big and successful company. But in return for that, you know, we got, we got very good educations, courtesy of the taxpayers of Wisconsin that I think I spent, it was like $2,500 either a semester or a year was what mm -hmm. I paid for my, my education at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, and I was able to, to pay that with a part-time job and a summer job uh, and escape without any debt. Um, right. And, and so that used to be the deal, and that is the deal that we should go back to. It should be possible to get yourself a good education, not by doing nothing, but if you're willing to work, to work your way through college right. and, um, and in exchange for that. And, and that was very heavily subsidized by taxing wealthy people, uh, in Wisconsin. And, and so one of the tragedies of recent history is that, um, you know, for various reasons, uh, the public has been convinced that taxing wealthy people is actually somehow bad for the economy. And, um, and as a result, we're starving, you know, I, you know, when I look back at what's happening in Wisconsin, it sort of breaks my heart, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the stress that the university, you know, mm -hmm. the University of Wisconsin was, you know, in the top 10 in many, many uh, fields and has fallen well out of that uh, because the budgets have been cut, um, you know, by people that believe in that lowering taxes are a higher priority than having high quality education. You know, I had long discussions with my brother about whether we would have actually kept started and kept our company in Madison in suburban Madison where it, right. where it's run um, if we did not have the steady stream of very well educated kids to hire into our company uh, because that was the really that was the thing that kept us in Madison and, you know it's not a natural place to make theater lighting you know then you go to Hollywood you go to you know New York City for Broadway or, mm -hmm. or whatever but you don't naturally go to <laughs> to Middleton Wisconsin yeah. uh, but but anyway, so I think that we, um, you know, one of the problems with politics is that the time window is only uh, goes as far as the next election. If there's not a payoff in the next election, politicians aren't interested in it. And so when you spend money on early childhood education, there's no economic benefit to that for decades. And so this is, uh, it causes us to underspend on things with long-term payoffs. And like federal research, yeah, federal research. I mean, when you got into politics, did you find yourself sort of torn by that same dynamic? Um, no, all the time. Um, yeah. and the, the, you know, I found that politicians understand the logic perfectly, uh, but they also have the survival imperative. And that if you try to go home and campaign, that, oh, look, at, I did this wonderful thing. I increased spending on early childhood education. Our country will be much better off in 20 years because I did that. Uh, that's not what people want to, and the person running against you says, I voted to cut your taxes um, if, you're, if you're wealthy or even, even comfortable. 
and they they go back home and you know unfortunately over time uh, that second message has seemed to have uh, a lot more traction than the first one and you know it's it's almost a design problem with democracy the short time scales yeah yeah i mean it's like the quarterly earnings report right uh, exactly yeah, and so, you know, there, I think there, there are interesting structures that have been proposed, you know, so-called loyalty shares that reward long-term holders of, of, of shares of companies mm-hmm. more than people who hold on to it for 40 milliseconds right. during high-frequency trading, uh, which is, you know, sensible. Um, I think the longer terms for members of Congress, you know, this two-year, um, you know, perpetual election cycle is something that makes it very hard to concentrate on you know, on doing your job, which is to writing, writing legislation right. that will actually help the country. Right. Well, you, you also chair a house task force on artificial intelligence. So, you know, speaking of these things that it's hard to go back and perhaps sell to your district. Um, so what's the, what's the function of the task force? And I ask us, you know, the company that yeah. owns this podcast uh, is deeply invested in artificial intelligence itself. Oh, sure. Well, I guess I'm probably the only member of Congress who actually is an, an AI programmer. Uh, when I when I couldn't stand it about two government shutdowns ago, when a certain uh, senator will not be named who was reading Dr. Seuss um, overnight <laughs> as the government was shut down. Right. And, uh, and you know what I did? I just can't stand it. I have to think about something else. So I went and, and downloaded uh, the tutorial for TensorFlow, which is Google's open source AI engine, and worked through the tutorial on it. Was pleased to um, find which I'm sure I'm sure many members of Congress did. Oh yeah, that's right. Just standard thing, but mm-hmm. um, and it was very interesting. But one of the things that struck me was that the algorithms there are not different than the algorithms that we used uh, 25 years ago to classify particle physics interactions at Fermilab, at the laboratory that I worked. Uh, because what you see is you smash the protons and antiprotons together, you get a spray of all kinds of junk. And you don't know just by looking at one piece of junk, you know, what the original configuration was that produced it. Mm-hmm. But by using um, neural networks, uh, you can actually uh, reconstruct with in a probabilistic way what actually the stuff came from. And so the algorithms are just the same, but what's different are just the orders of magnitude more computing power that you right. can uh, direct to the problems. And you get, uh, you get qualitatively more powerful answers. Uh, and so these fundamentally pretty stupid algorithms get phenomenal results. Um, you know, and so that's one of the interesting features of, of AI, why there was this huge breakthrough. You know, I guess roughly 2012 was when the dam broke on right. a lot of performance of neural nets. Um, and then trying to understand what that means for humanity is, you know, that's, that's actually something that uh, has penetrated into the political consciousness but no one knows what the answers are. You know, I, I started explaining this, um, you know, back when I saw the huge breakthroughs around 2010, 2012 in AI, realized that, you know, uh, this was just going to be very disruptive to people's jobs, that almost everyone who's staring at a screen all day um, has their, you know, has their job at risk which is a lot of high-paying jobs. It's not just, um, you know, factory jobs where they're using your body as a, as a machine. Um, and so that this is going to be disruptive and we're going to have to rethink, um, well, often it's called the future of work, but as much as that, it's the future of compensation. Mm-hmm. That if, we, if we decide that we're going to link people's compensation to the economic value of their work, then that's a very tough situation. Uh, for a big slice of humanity, especially hmm. when they have to compete with machines. Um, yeah, well, I think it's, it, it seems to be true even at, at uh, you know, sort of the blue-collar level. I mean, um, I think the single largest employment category, or one of the single largest ones is, is truck drivers. And with, you know, AI-driven autonomous vehicles, you know, there's well, yeah. a huge dislocation. Yeah, long list of things and some very well-written uh, uh, you know, the, I think the second machine age was the first one that I think the book that uh, uh, that laid it out most clearly to me. That mm-hmm. said, okay, these are all the arguments that I'd seen bits and pieces and, and it put it all in one place. Um, and really it forces you to, to we're going to have to rethink the economy 
you know, every, everyone's kind of familiar with the old science fiction plot where there's one one person who owns the robot factory mm. and no one can compete in any job for the robots that are built by the robots in his factory. And, you know, the problem is we are we're within spitting distance of that, you know, and whether that one person ends up being, you know, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, you know, it's sort of a second order question. Right. Uh, but but the point is that most ordinary jobs will be at risk from AI, you know, including salesmen. I got to say, you know, this is, you know, it's a it's a worry when you look at the the um, what they call GPT three, uh, this program that Google developed and, and released in various forms uh, that can write prose. And it's very impressive, and it can do other related things that you that in the past had really been thought were only the province of the human mind, and they can at least make very convincing imitations of it. And you know, as um, you know, a big part of my job in as a politician, it's sort of legislator by day and telemarketer by night. Uh, <laughs> that you know, you, you spend a lot of your time raising money for money, your campaign. Right? Uh, which means you're having very repetitive discussions with a large number of people to convince them that the product you're selling, which is your candidacy, is something that, that they can get excited about investing in. Um, and, you know, there are a finite set of arguments that you can make in favor of this. So you, you adopt those, you adapt those arguments to the how you perceive the person uh, at the other end of the phone is going to receive them and you, you sort of mix, mix and match them. But it's not something that is out of the range of what could be done, uh, you know, with artificial intelligence. So one of my software uh, projects that I'm working on is just to make a, a deep fake version of myself and to do all of my fundraising call time. So I can just, um, you know, just uh, have this thing dial out and people won't be able to tell that it's not really Bill Foster <laughs> on the phone asking him for money for the campaign. Well, we'll have to uh, hook you up with our scientists. They can they can help you with that. We 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 make the, the leading dialer. So uh, yeah, well, we that's right. And right, and so just you know, the uh, with enough data, you can actually do a very good job of this. You know, I'm the the people that sort of um, supervise me as I'm doing this. You know, the people staffing me, mm -hmm. where you know we discuss and we summarize the discussion at the end of this. You know, they get a pretty good feeling for what types of people are most productive to have me cold call. Sure. Uh, and so that over time, we've decided that some of my most productive people to call are university professors and scientists who end up being very excited about supporting, you know, the only PhD scientist in the U.S. Congress. And for many people, you introduce yourself that way, and that's the end of the negotiation. They say, okay, yeah, where's your campaign website? I want to give you some money. Right. Uh, and so as a result, you know, there are various groups that look at, um, you know, which candidate gets money from the oil industry or the, or the shoe industry or, you know, you name it. And, and, and then they look at this guy Foster and he raises far more money from scientists and academics than any other member of Congress. And, and so I just, and then they ask me about this, what's going on here? I just tell them I'm deep in the pocket of the scientific truth lobby. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's a, yeah, yeah, but it's, just, this is something that artificial intelligence, you know, this was done by, in discussions with my staff and me, uh, gradually discovering that it's very productive for me to cold call university professors. Yeah. Um, but but this is also something, a pattern that could be sensed by rather simple artificial intelligence. Yes. And it actually sort of is already in the commercial world. We'll, we'll, okay. offline, we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, so a big question for you is, is, for me is, all right, we just, <laughs> we're recording this two days after the Electoral College certified president-elect Biden as the winner of the election. Um, you know, given how polarized things are across the country, is, is how, do you, how do you, because this is, relates to sales in terms of finding common ground with, with people you're talking with, you know, potential buyers, how do you find common ground with, with you know, your opponents across the aisle, the opposing politicians? I mean, how do you, when we are so, I don't know, polarized, yeah. truth, no, truth, truth challenged, whatever we want to call it. Yeah, no, it's, it's tough. I mean, the, our species is very tribal. And we're very quickly, uh, we're programmed to classify everyone rapidly as a member of my tribe or the enemy tribe. 
And getting past that is very rough. You know, one of my favorite Republicans to to collaborate with is a member from the South, and we agree on all kinds of things in financial services where I collaborate with him. But during the campaign, uh, he said some incredibly racist things. Mm -hmm. And so I have to compartmentalize that. I have to say, I will continue to collaborate with this gentleman um, on financial services areas where we agree. And I will just have to not think about what my father would have thought about the racist things that he said in his campaign and deciding whether you're okay with that or not. And Mm -hmm. it is a challenge. It's a challenge. Uh, Because if you just say, you know, if you look at, you know, every, every person on earth says something that will alienate another person on earth. You know, there is no one who's clean that way. And so you have to um, do your best to just shut off the part of your brain that says, this is the enemy tribe, you know, run away, try to um, get even with them. Another thing that I think is, is really putting our democracy under stress is, uh, is basically we're losing the principles, the enlightenment that science and logic and facts are the starting point for any discussion, right. that a large number of, a large fraction of the voting public lives in this bubble where it's reality TV is real. Uh, you know, they think of our current president as someone who's very, um, you know, a very decisive leader and so on based on, on his reality TV persona without understanding that this did not come from an, any proven ability to govern or right. even to run a business well. Uh, and so this is a, um, and, and so this, you know, this is a problem uh, that we'll, that we used to be able to say, okay, what are the actual facts here? And then proceed from policy from that. And if you don't ex- have a common set of facts, it's very difficult. And, and this is tough. It used to be that what was true was what Walter Cronkite said was true on the six o'clock news. <laughs> right. Right. And, and now the problem is what's true on, in Fox News is not what's true in MSNBC. That, um, you know, whether or not there was wide-scale fraud in the election, you know, there are objective facts on this, is not something that's, um, that's accepted um, in, from all news sources. And, and it's tough. Um, it, it's also tough when you get um, AI-driven editorial uh, forces, yeah. you know, like your, your Facebook news feed. You know, I'm mm-hmm. sort of horrified that even the very well-educated uh, and involved people who work in my office get a big fraction of their news from their Facebook news feed. You know, it's, <laughs> and it just, yeah. it just went, oh my God, you know, but it's, that's, that's the reality. And, and, you know, it's very destructive because of the, the echo chamber effect, you know, it amplifies this. And, um, it causes you to think deeply about how you can regulate AI. You know, there's there's an old story in AI that um, that I guess I remember. Yeah, when I was an undergraduate, I heard it that that you have a super intelligent machine, and you say, okay, here is your job: maximize production of paper clips. And the super intelligent machine thinks for a moment, and then it says, okay, I will begin by killing all humans on Earth uh, because. <laughs> You know, it interferes with paperclip production. Right. And so, you know, the Facebook AIs are designed to maximize profits of, of Facebook. And the reaction of their AIs is to destroy all rational debate in our country because that's what max, maximizes engagement and, and Facebook profits. And it doesn't mean that, that Facebook is evil. It doesn't mean that, you know, you know the, many of the racist things that show up in AI algorithms can occur without one line of racist code in in the in the algorithm, but because of the way they train on racially biased data sets, mm-hmm. uh, it pops out. And so, uh, trying to understand how we deal with that, um, and and it's it causes you to think very deeply about about what you think is fair. Right. Uh, there's this interesting paper that I encountered that has 25 different definitions of fairness. <laughs> And, and they were all, you know, operationally different. Right. And, and uh, you know, it's tough. For, for example, if you say, okay, we're going to decide um, whether to give someone a loan or not, say a mortgage loan. Um, and yes. you, can have, you can have two people that are identically, two families that are identically situated, you know, same income, same wealth, same everything. 
Um, and if one of them is of a different race than the other, one of them might much be much more likely to have a wealthy a wealthy cousin, because if you know mm-hmm. if you're having trouble making a morning uh, a mortgage loan, and um, your cousin will help you pay it off. Yeah, yeah, it's a standard way of doing it, but for uh, unjustifiable historical reasons, people of some race are, are much less likely uh, to have that wealthy cousin. And so that if you tell your AI algorithm do not look at the race of the loan applicant. It will very rapidly, but you can look at anything else. It will very rapidly come up with proxies for race. Yep. And yeah. There was a, I don't, did you ever read uh, this book called Weapons of Math Destruction? By, I have not. By yep. Kathy, Kathy O'Neill. Um, yeah, I highly recommend it because she's a, a quant a data scientist, worked in Wall Street, uh, now in academia, wrote this very compelling book about the dangers of algorithms and you know gave this precise example you just cited as yeah. one of the examples in terms of you know there's there is some that's right I, but then, bias, then if you, you will, built into the al- the people that create the algorithms yeah and so then if you as a legislator say okay I'm going to make a rule that you know on average you have to keep, treat people of all races uh, equally um, you know, just by testing your algorithm afterwards and making sure that the rate you quote people of all different races are the same rate, then very rapidly um, you will be encounter some startup that does, oh, we have improved our neural net algorithm and we've identified a class of people that can be better served with our algorithm and we can quote them a better, uh, better rate. Mm-hmm. And then you say, okay, who exactly are these? And they say, well, there are a variety of people, but most of them are white males. <laughs> okay, that, and so then you're, you're faced with this issue. Okay, so I, if I approve their business model, you go and, um, you know, so then they have, they've introduced a product that helps everyone, but it helps some people more than others. Right. And is that fair or not? It's like the, the experiment that they sometimes perform with undergraduates. Uh, where they say, okay, here's the here's the deal. Um, we will give each one of you $100, but we will only give you $10. Do you accept that deal or not? And if you're a rational person, you say, of course I accept that deal because I have $10 more than I, I had. Have, oh, right. But, but you know, 99% of humans say, hell no. Uh, you know, I'm not going to take that. Why, why should I settle for 10 when everyone else gets 100? I'd rather everyone gets zero. And it's, it's a famous example of the fact that we're objectively not rational uh, people. And yeah. it shows up in, I'm sure it shows up in sales and spades. Oh, yeah. yeah. We talk about it all the time. It's, well, I mean, uh, I'm actually writing something about this right now, about uh, Herbert Simon's theory of bounded rationality when it comes to decision-making. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah not, mm-hmm. not, not rational at all. So, it's our last, last question for you. And, and again, I'm not trying to get overtly political but it's you know it's this whole idea of truth objective truth is is you know this whole issue around the uh fraudulent voting whatever in the election i said no no proof of any of this taking place whatsoever but the politicians you know 120 house republicans that are signed up to the texas lawsuit uh filed a brief in support of with supreme court um do you think they actually believed that's what's happening, or is this just politics? Um, no, the majority of them do not. Uh, in my, at least the majority of them that I talk to <laughs> uh, do not. But they have to survive a Republican primary. Uh, so I spend a lot of my time you know, sitting around between votes and, and musing about how you get this group of very irrational primates to uh, act a little more rationally uh, by trying to design mechanisms that, that cause them to behave better. Um, and so one of the fundamental things I think we have wrong is to have separate partisan primaries in this country. Um, that, hmm. that is the source of all kinds of mischief. Um, and some states are getting away from it. Uh, for example, in California, uh, the, the top two candidates uh, right. from the primary oh, emerged right. independent, independent of party. And so this makes it very hard if you have separate partisan primaries it's impossible for someone to get their 51% out of the middle. Uh, you know, I don't know what you think of, of Bloomberg's candidacy uh, for president for a variety of reasons, but uh, he was very, to my mind, a very credible centrist candidate 
who was effectively denied the opportunity to run because he could not either make it through a Republican primary or a Democratic primary. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet in a, in a nonpartisan unified primary, I think he would have been a very credible centrist candidate. Um, And so that's an example of, of this. Um, At least in Illinois, most of the local elections are nonpartisan mayor's elections, city council's elections and so on. Now, people know who the Democrats and Republicans are. San Diego, too, right? Yeah, but it's a very different dynamic that happens when when you don't have the separate primaries. And so if I had my choice of uh, and then there's a there's an embellishment of that called ranked choice. Well, I was going to ask you Uh, about that. That was my what do you think of that? Um, I think it's a good idea. My my very favorite system is to have uh, the primaries uh, are what are called acceptance voting um, and followed by ranked choice voting. But those that's a detail. The general idea behind ranked choice is that, first off, it's a unified primary uh, so that uh, someone can get their 51 percent out of the middle. Um, and so it's an opportunity to... Um, to elect centrists. It also eliminates the possibility of getting these really extremists on either the left or the right. Um, It makes their road a lot tougher because they are not likely to be the second choice of anyone. (laughs) Well, the the ranked choice choice voting works by uh, you rank all the candidates in the order you'd prefer them? uh, Yes, that's the simplest form. Okay. Um, and then they say, okay, who's the least popular candidate? Either the pre- the person who got the smallest number of first place votes or some more complicated system. And so then you say, okay, um, you know, kick that one out, ignore it. And then, and then if that was your first choice, you say, okay, who is your second choice? And that becomes your first choice. Um, and like that, then you repeat the ballot. And, huh. uh, and so you keep slicing off candidates from the bottom until you're left with two candidates, and then whichever one is the is preferred among those two. Uh, and so, you know, there's a, you can do it easily on a spreadsheet. And right. And spreadsheets that do it. But it's a, uh, you know, it, uh, I, it provide it generates a lot more centrist candidates. Um, for example, this worked uh, perfectly as designed in Maine in, um, in the 2018 election where there were three candidates. There was a very right-wing Republican, there was a sort of moderate Democrat, and then there was a Green Party, uh, very liberal one, who was in third place. And so the um, on the first ballot, if you just look at first place votes, the plurality of first place votes went to the conservative Republican because the Democrats split between the Green Party and the, and the, the conservative Democrat. And then what happened is that the Green Party um, was eliminated because they got the fewest votes. And then most of the Green Party votes, the second choice of Green Party voters were the conservative Democrat who ended up winning. And which really represents, you know, represents, I think, the the voters of Maine pretty well. Um, Interesting. And and, and so this is an example of someone getting their 51 percent out of the middle. And um, and it's becoming more and more popular. The other aspect of this is that a lot of the political machines get their power from from the partisan primaries. You get these very light, very small turnout uh, primary elections uh, that that if you have a, a political machine, you can go and swamp the small number of, of votes that get right. cast there. Um, and in fact, a lot of centrists say, you know, I don't want to vote in either the Democratic or the Republican primary because I'm not a fan of either one. Right. Uh, whereas if there was a, um, you know, something, a system where a centrist had a reasonable shot of winning, they might actually um, show up and vote. Um, well, it's an interesting point as yeah. you you keep talking about the centrists is that, um, yeah, it seems like getting back to the election and, and sort of public discourse, it does seem like the middle has vanished to yeah. some degree. And, and you, you see that all the way through Congress. You know, when when we're striking these big deals in Congress, uh, it is always a small number of the leadership uh, that are in in the the room where it happens and the Mm -hmm. final deal gets struck. And it's always, oh, let's go talk to Mitch McConnell or Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer or whoever's in the room. Um, And why is it that those are the only people that are relevant to this? 
And it's because the system is set up uh, to incentivize, uh, you know, partisan block voting. Because if you are the leader of a party and you can deliver a majority of votes, uh, you can always deliver a majority of votes for whatever you decide is going to be your policy, mm-hmm. then you are the only person worth talking to. Okay. And the sort of mantra that, you know, both sides have that, you know, our, our unity is our strength um, really means that the unity of a party is the leadership strength. And there are a number of uh, mechanisms that have, that have been eviscerated uh, to, um, that used to provide a lot of political power to a centrist coalition that would form on a specific issue. Uh, and, you know, one of these is um, the so-called discharge petition. Uh, that, you know, right now the Speaker of the House or the majority leader in the Senate has essentially dictatorial power over what gets voted on. Right. And so if you ask why is it that we never passed the DREAM Act that provides uh, that provides immigration status to, to young kids that were brought here, the mm-hmm. people that were brought here as young kids by their parents, um, which is very popular. It's, I think, 80% of the U.S. public supports it, and yet we've never passed that. It's because uh, the um, the people in power in control of their caucus um, realize that if they bring that up, that part of their base will be so angry at them that they will lose, that they will lose control of their caucus. And that's why, um, why Paul Ryan and John Boehner, uh, despite knowing the fact that the majority of, of the American people uh, supported, supported, for example, the DREAM Act, um, it, they never brought it up because that would guarantee an insurrection by the, the right, the extreme right wing of their party. And which, so it's, it's which something. they both faced. Um, that's right, which they both faced. But they were told bluntly that if they brought up the Dream Act, um, it would have passed by you know a hundred votes if it had been brought up. But if they brought it up, they were told that the next day there would be a motion to vacate the chair and they would lose their, um, you know, their control of the party. Hmm. Um, and, and so this is the system that we've set up amplifies the power of political machines and also amplifies the power of the extreme wings of the party. Um, and you do that by making it difficult or impossible uh, for centrist uh, coalitions to, to form and to have their power be felt. So, and yeah. then there are mechanisms to do this. Um, right. You know, there was, a, there was a, a tragic mistake made back in 1993 when we made the the discharge petition, which used to be an anonymous uh, deal, uh, what there's there's a safety valve that was put put in place probably a hundred years ago um, to in Congress to prevent the dictatorial power of the speaker or the majority leader uh, from being exercised, which is that if you could simply get a piece of legislation and get a majority of members of Congress to sign, sign on to it, that would immediately force a floor vote. Uh, and, and that was very successful for most of 100 years. And then in 1993, we made the simple change to make it public when you signed on to a discharge petition. So then now the moment that you sign on to an enemy discharge petition, the speaker or the majority of leader will come and punish you by taking away your committee assignments or all the various tools they have to punish you. Uh, it's, and, it sounds like kindergarten, <laughs> but, but it's a, you know, and this was a, well, anyway, so it, there's yeah. very interesting. If you look at the, the Wikipedia article on discharge petition, it's very illuminating. Yeah. Uh, the history of this, but, but you, if you simply make this, um, make this anonymous the way it was for most of the last hundred years, uh, then all of a sudden the speaker won't know who to punish. And, and, and things like the DREAM Act will magically get over the threshold of having a majority of members sign on to it. There will be a floor vote. You know, and had that happened, uh, we would have had passed not only the DREAM Act, but comprehensive immigration reform. And, you know, Donald Trump would be this fading reality TV star. So it would have changed history. So me- mechanisms yeah. matter. And, yeah, mechanisms and, matter. Well, Bill, thank you so much for your time. Sure. Well, thank you. And, and we got through the entire hour without discussing all of the stories of, of, of seventh grade. So we've done well that way, too. <laughs> well, you could share one if you wanted. I, 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 I don't have. No, no, no. I, I, will, the I, will, not. I, I will not. <laughs> all right. Well, well Bill, thank, thank you. Again. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Yep.
Thank you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, my very special guest, Representative Bill Foster, for sharing his story and his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or a review, let us know how we're doing. Well, we'd appreciate that. And you can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thanks for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.